Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ash Kazarian. On today's show, we're going to talk about technology, cryptocurrency, and Florida. Those are the three topics that are very exciting, and we have a very special guest uh, joining us to cover them. We have Andrea O'Sullivan from uh, the James Madison Institute in Florida. She is the new director of tech policy there. They just opened a technology and innovation policy center, and I am so excited to have her on. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. So um, tell our listeners uh, first about the James Madison Institute, if they might not be familiar with your work and if they're maybe not from Florida or they don't do state policy, kind of sure. what, what do you guys do? Sure. So the James Madison Institute is uh, part of a state policy network. So we are a Florida-focused think tank uh, looking at economic matters in the state of Florida. Um, we have a focus on, you know, limited government, free markets, um, the typical kind of SPN toolkit. And we try to look at ways to make the state of Florida more competitive, um, just a nicer place to live in terms of policy. And now with the, I should say, reopening of the center, because we've had it for a while, but now we're kind of revamping it. Uh, we're really starting to look at tech policy and what reforms the state of Florida can make to be you know, more competitive, uh, not only in the country, but in the world. Florida is already a really nice place to live, right? We have beautiful nature. We have pretty good policies in terms of regulations and taxes. Um, but surprisingly, we don't have too much in the way of people really addressing tech policy specifically. There's a couple of industry groups um, and, you know, uh, lobbyists, right, for maybe specific companies or, like I said, industries. But in terms of, like, taking a principled approach, um, there's not much. And there's a lot of low-hanging fruit there. So we're very excited to harvest that. I guess in Florida, it's oranges, right? We're, uh, <laughs> we're looking forward to, to, you know, really making some, um, some smart reforms here. I really thought you were going to say orange juice. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so the center as far as I understand, it's a new creation, right? So you guys wanted to focus on tech policy. So GMI created the center and then they brought you in to run it. Am I right? Yep, that's exactly right. Um, so we had, I guess you could say a soft opening maybe one or two years ago. We did have a very successful um, tech summit in Orlando last year. It was before I was hired full-time, but I did attend. Um, that brought a lot of our friends within, you know, our kind of circles. Um, I don't know if we had anyone from Tech Freedom there specifically. You did. But you had Ian. Oh, perfect. Amy, there you go. I remember, I remember Ian and I were like, okay, which one of us is going to go? And I think I picked Texas instead, but it sounds like Florida was way more fun. Yes, um, it was a good time. Um, in yeah, I'm sure several of your guests were there as well. Um, so that was a big success, and we're looking forward to planning another one this year. Of course, with the virus, there's you know complications. We don't know the extent to which we'll be able to have like a full house or social distancing, or you know, will it be virtual? Um, but we're going or on to, a beach. You know, Let's just have it on a beach. You <laughs> I know, agree. Outside. Right? I'm just saying that's the best place you can be, right, out in the sunshine. Um, but yeah, we're going to, you know, do what we can and build on those successes and, you know, make our mark. That is so exciting. And I'm now looking forward to actually maybe being able to come to your forum if, you know, God willing, and if yep. we can curtail all the awful things that are happening. Um, so 
before you were at GMI, you were a very prominent uh, researcher at Mercatus, I believe, right? Yep. And mm -hmm. at Mercatus, what was the area that you focused on? So I started out at Mercatus because my background was in economics and I was just working on spending and budget. Veronique de Rougy. Uh, I was her research assistant and we did a lot of, um, you know, typical public economics and also um, specific programs like looking at the Export-Import Bank. But we also had a tech policy team there, um, specifically Jerry Brito and Eli Dorado. They were two of the first folks really anywhere to look at cryptocurrencies seriously. Um, and they learned that I had been involved with cryptocurrency since I was in college in like 2011. So like super, super early days. Um, so I had a lot of insight into the history of the project and just how it worked. Like you have to understand back in 2013, people like didn't really know what it was at all. They're like, what's that? A scam. <laughs> so just knowing the basics of like mining and network validation, um, that was very useful at the time. Um, Jerry Brito and I put together the one of the first um, policy-specific cryptocurrency manuals called Bitcoin, a primer for policymakers. And that was very successful um, because we were so early to the game and there was really no good information at all, we could kind of like set the tone and in that way secure a space on the federal level for innovation. Um, and I can't take total credit, so Jerry went on and um, founded his own cryptocurrency specific think tank and they did a lot of great things in terms of working with FinCEN to develop their regulations, working with Congress to try to get some clarity on tax laws, basically any kind of federally focused policy issue Coin Center is um, covering and really doing a good job with that. Um, but that's how I kind of entered the Bitcoin space. Um, it was a huge, it was like one of the best learning experiences you could have in terms of tech policy because we, like I said, we were the first people there. Um, so we could really forge our own path. And I'm very excited to be doing that now on the state level in Florida. When it comes to regulation of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general, cryptocurrency policy, as we are in the middle of 2020, I, today it, we're recording on, what, June 15th, so we're pretty much in the middle of a year. Um, what are the challenges and maybe the actually more positive developments that are happening in that space because of the reality of the pandemic, conversations about racial injustice, distrust of government, um, you know, the old school economic structures collapsing. Uh, did that change the way uh, the cryptocurrency policy folks and people who do, um, you know, the groundwork on it uh, approach it or how they, you know, practice in it? Um, I think one thing that any kind of uh, societal unrest makes clear is the value proposition of cryptocurrencies, right? So you can look at it from the point of view of, so you bring up the pandemic, it wasn't just a question of, you know, the virus, it's also economic effects, um, the crazy financial bailout we had, right? Everything that's going on with the Fed and a lot of people feel there's not a lot of accountability there. Well, uh, what do you know? We have a private functioning savings technology that is unconfiscatable by design um, and very secure. So there's that value proposition. Um, in terms of any kind of social unrest, right? Um, where people are holding power to account, well, we have a censorship resistant currency. Um, one big conversation in tech policy right now is 
as platforms, not just in terms of like Section 230, but also like what accountability platforms have to the public beyond like laws. Um, and yeah, these are powerful entities. If they decide they don't like you for whatever reason, they can shut down your PayPal account, they can shut down your, you know, Patreon, whatever whatever it is, um, and we can have laws to try to keep them in line, but the fact of the matter is the power resides with that central third party. Well, with something like a cryptocurrency, you, you ultimately will have some method to transfer funds that cannot be shut down by anybody, right? So nobody likes experiencing <laughs> breakdown, <laughs> chaos, um, but that proves the value proposition of cryptocurrencies. So it certainly gives us uh, more case studies. If you had to outline the three major questions that cryptocurrency policy has to address, um, and not just in 2020, but the three major questions for people who are just, you know, learning about this uh, area and are not as familiar, what would be the three things that you would want them to know about or uh, research them more themselves and uh, read about? Sure. So in terms of public policy, the first thing that typically comes up is, oh, that's a way that people can commit crimes, right? Uh, it has this kind of shadowy mystique to it. Well, there's two immediate answers to that. And this is one that policymakers, once you explain it to them, they generally understand. Uh, the first is that if you want to commit a crime, um, most people aren't turning to cryptocurrency. The number one currency of crime worldwide is the US dollar, and that's for a very good reason. It's you know the world's reserve currency, A, and B, I mean, it's cash, right? <laughs> like it, you, it's physical, you can move it around. There are methods that people have done for decades to do that. So that's, first of all, it's just not accurate that cryptocurrency is the choice of criminals. But more importantly, cryptocurrency, let's talk about uh, Bitcoin specifically, which is, you know, the most popular one, the first one, um, it's radically transparent. Every transaction that's made on the blockchain is there for viewable to the public for all time. Um, there is nothing that anyone or computer or intelligence agency can do to edit the blockchain uh, after the fact. So in other words, that's a smoking gun on the blockchain. Um, so there are entire companies that are engaged in blockchain analysis that work with law enforcement to try to help them to do that. Um, so in terms of public policy, um, the worry about blockchains, public blockchains being used to commit crimes is severely misplaced. Second of all, I think people don't realize the extent to which cryptocurrencies don't fit very neatly onto established regulations, and that's not by design. It's totally an accident that people don't realize. The big issue I'm working on right now is um, money transmission laws. So these are laws that we've had for decades on people like money exchangers, anybody who's like taking money um, for their customers and holding it, um, you know, for whatever financial services they're providing. The reason that we have those laws is so that people don't like just, or businesses don't run away with your money or they're not, you know, scams, like it's a consumer protection function. Well, the way that these laws are written, depending on how the courts want to interpret it, any private individual making any purchase in Bitcoin whatsoever could be considered a money transmitter. And that means they're subject to these regulations. They have to like pay all this money for a license and submit to auditing. And it's a very costly procedure, which is, you know, obviously just silly for a private individual to undertake, but even for a business who wants to accept cryptocurrency just for in the course of, you know, providing goods and services, they would 
be scared away from it because they don't want to be subjected to these regulations. So that's the first issue I'm working on in the state of Florida, um, just kind of drawing attention to how these legal, uh, this legal vagueness in the law has led to these unintended consequences. And there's very easy changes that you can make. Um, a great example is the state of Wyoming. Uh, not only have they changed their money transmission laws, they have changed their state banking charters. So they now have the, the world's first Bitcoin native uh, bank, which is super impressive and one that I hope other states will look to. Um, the third issue, uh, and this is one that I haven't looked in super closely myself, but it's probably the most third most relevant is just the tax treatment of Bitcoins. This is a federal issue. Um, and it's one that people are working very closely with the IRS to try to resolve. Um, but unfortunately, the current structure is just not very conducive <laughs> to encouraging cryptocurrency. So it's one that I hope uh, gets changed pretty soon. I really want to highlight that the vagueness that leads to unintended consequences is the theme of every bad law uh, right. that probably exists, not only in America, but around the world, but especially in America, just because of the way the legal system is structured. Um, my next question would be, so you kind of outlined what issues you're going to be working on on state level um, in the cryptocurrency space. What other issues your tech and innovation center is going to be covering? Um, what are the state tech policy issues that are important? Because uh, we, Tech Freedom, do collaborate with GMI and have collaborated before and we always talk and do panels about privacy, about free speech online. We've talked, I believe Sal, um, he moderated a panel I did in, on drone regulation. Like there are all so many state level questions on tech policy that can be and should be covered and there's not enough people doing them, which often leads to lawmakers having misguided instincts um, and knee-jerk reactions to things. So what are you guys in the next year or so, or maybe two years, or maybe you're one of those people who has five years plans, uh, which I admire, are going to be focusing on? Sure. So this, so Florida has two pretty relevant kind of demographic and um, geographic elements when it comes to policy. So first of all, we have a large population of retirees, okay? So health policies are very important there. And we're a fairly spread out state, right? Um, it's very car focused. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of ground to be gained in terms of transportation. So when it comes to medicine, um, the state of Florida is actually pretty proactive on this. Um, last year, they passed a major piece of legislation that um, reformed state um, certificate of need laws, right? So these are regulations on hospitals and any medical service provider. It's, it's so insane. You have to ask permission before expanding any kind of facility or service. You have to like prove it to yourself before a board. Um, so they've slashed that dramatically. Um, and they're starting drone pharmacy trials in the state. So building on those reforms to kind of look at like what needs to be done in terms of telemedicine, what needs to be done in terms of like other autonomous deliveries, other autonomous services to help um, our, you know, retired and elderly population here. And the COVID crisis has kind of put more of an urgency on that. I mean, we're in an environment 
hopefully this is resolved soon, but with a respiratory illness, people are fearful to go anywhere, let alone like a medical service facility where there might be other infected people. Um, this is really important. So we're gonna be taking a very close look at that. Um, then in terms of transportation, Florida has had a couple of autonomous um, driving car um, trials here. Um, there is a lot, a lot of value to be gathered there just because we are so car centric and to the extent that people's commutes can be more productive or, you know, even like safer, uh, we can lower the uh, number of fatalities on the road. Um, that would be huge for Florida. Uh, and then of course, whenever you talk about anything, drones, driverless cars, anything that's very like bandwidth heavy, heavy telecom, you know, that's kind of the bread and butter of tech policy. Florida is fairly good on it. Um, we are about to be releasing a state principles for telecom um, that a lot of other SPN um, organizations signed on to. It's going to be tailored to the state of Florida with a couple of like, you know, good ideas in that area. Um, so these things all kind of come together. That is so exciting. And that is a lot of work you have planned for yourself. So I am Wishing you best of luck in all of those <laughs> um, projects and uh, Tech Freedom is looking forward to collaborate with you guys on all of them or some of them, wherever you choose. Um, <laughs> I'm sure uh, there is a lot of uh, ground to be covered. Uh, so before I let you go, um, we have a segment called Women in Tech uh, and we basically just kind of ask our guests um, how they end up in tech policy. You covered it a little bit in the beginning about how you went to Mercatus and kind of you had background in cryptocurrency and that how you, that's how you got involved in that area of tech policy. Uh, do you mind telling our listeners a little bit more about um, what kind of educational background you had in the sense that a lot of folks in this area either have, you know, a degree in economics or are lawyers or poli-sci folks. Um, some people even have philosophy backgrounds and they usually write the longest papers. Um, so what is kind of the background that you use and the tools that you use in your research? Um, what other areas um, on top of cryptocurrency attract you the most and you think are kind of the future of tech policy? Sure. So I started, my background is in economics. Um, initially, I, I wanted to be a lawyer um, for no exciting reason other than my parents and uncles and aunts and everybody in my family is lawyers. So I was like, okay, let me do that. Um, but I happened to be in college during the financial crisis and bailout. And, you know, I considered myself well-read and educated and I was looking around and I had no clue what was going on. And I was thinking like, that's absurd. <laughs> I should have some kind of tool to be able to analyze this. Um, so I went to Florida State University and we were fortunate enough to have a very, very strong economics department. Um, and we had professors who specialized in Austrian economics and institutional economics, which are, you know, kind of rare, right? Um, and these kind of challenge a lot of the, um, prevailing economic like assumptions and models that the government uses. Um, and so I, I was hooked. I went to one meeting um, of like, you know, an economic analysis of the financial crisis and I was hooked and um, I changed my major like a year before graduating. <laughs> um, and so having these tools of economics and kind of always believing, um, you know, the, the principles of methodological individualism are like subjective, right? Like those are values that I um, held. Uh, and so I was looking at the situation and thinking, there, it doesn't seem like there's a, a 
government route out of this, it seems like there needs to be, well, it's like the Hayek quote, right? Like one day there will be a private money that will be so good that people will switch to it. That's not the literal quote, but um, the idea is that like the market would eventually out, out compete um, government money. And then we found Bitcoin. Um, and when we found it, I'm not kidding you. It was like not worth a penny. Um, <laughs> I remember the day that it hit a dollar on the chat rooms. It, people were like, sell, you know, I'm, we're rich. You know, they would have made like just a couple of hundred dollars. Right. Um, and it seemed like this confirms my biases so much. Like there's no way it's going to take off. This is too good to be true. But like, lo and behold, today it's, you know, a hundred billion dollar plus industry. Um, in terms of, I mean, it's just, I guess I don't have like any advice into how to get into it for other people just because it was a very personal kind of process for me. It was something that reflected my values and my hopes for the future. And I was just lucky enough that it turned out to be right. <laughs> right. And it's, um, it is so true that you can't deny it. Right. Like it's something that Nobody needed permission to run it. Um, the, te the technology was developed and it was put out there. And if it was a lousy project, nobody would have mined it and it would have become, you know, obscure and irrelevant. But it works, <laughs> right? Um, so I don't know. Um, I feel very fortunate that I've been able to um, turn this into a career and um, through my work try to carve out little, you know, spaces of freedom for this technology. Um, and I'm very excited to see where it goes from here. To me personally, it's so exciting uh, to have someone who was there from the beginning in this area, not just someone, but a woman who was there from the beginning in this area. I think when in DC people talk about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, um, the cliche is always the like crypto bros. Um, and I think it's time to break that cliche and bring forward the voices that are not the crypto bros. For our listeners, she's not wearing any salmon shorts or in any Martha Vineyards um, polos. Uh, she definitely doesn't fit <laughs> that mold. And uh, where are, can our listeners read your work and find out more? Um, please give us links to your work that you've done before, any research that you want them to look into, and obviously the GMI's website and all the socials. Yeah, I want to comment a little bit on the crypto bro um, sure. <laughs> idea, because this is something that, you know, I get asked a lot about, um, and it doesn't really conform to like, at least my experience in this space. So Bitcoin is an open source project itself, right? Like, so there's a core protocol, um, anyone can review it, anybody can contribute to it, anybody can critique it. Um, but ultimately, it is like merit-based, right? Uh, it's not a situation where if a woman was to put forward something that's really great, you know, the crypto bros like couldn't drown her out. Um, I have never felt um, any hostility or any um, lack of, you know, respect in this space. If anything, I've I feel like I've received the opposite. I've received encouragement. Um, I've been clearly like very successful not to toot my own horn. Um, and I think it's actually a great space for women to get involved with. So earlier I mentioned Wyoming and how it's like leading the road uh, in cryptocurrency. Well, that's actually the product of a woman named Caitlin Long, who was a Wall Street veteran and cryptocurrency early adopter. And I don't want to say single-handedly because she did have, you know, male partners, but like she was certainly the leader on this project and she 
again, almost single-handedly created this space for Bitcoin innovation. Um, so I guess the message I want to leave for any um, women that are listening is that it's like certainly a, an exciting space. It's a very um, challenging space. I mean, it's a challenging technology, but it's certainly a very welcoming space. So I'd, I don't want anyone to uh, be worried <laughs> that they're going to be shouted down by the crypto bros because I found in my experience, it's been the opposite. That's very exciting that you are kind of, you know, shattering those stereotypes. Uh, I think DC is mostly creating those stereotypes just because of um, people who work as lobbyists in certain areas. And that's kind of what uh, happens. But it's very encouraging to hear that the space itself is way more um, democratized, I guess, would be the right word. Well, I mean, you have the crypto conferences with like the booth girls. And a lot of that was a product of the 2017 ICO boom. So that's anytime you have like a ton of easy money being made, you're going to have like sleaze balls, <laughs> you know, so like you can, if you're looking for it, you can find it. But in terms of, again, like the core developers and the technologists and the people working on the tech, um, they're super, super like, open, right? It's an open technology and it's an open community. Um, so I think that's very rare and very awesome. And I, I love to kind of like sing its praises when I get a chance. On that hopeful note, uh, please let our listeners know where they can find your work on these issues, any of the policy commentary that you've done and where they can look uh, at uh, GMI's work, uh, all of your socials, everything. Sure. So um, if you look up the James Madison Institute, so it's jamesmadison.org, you can find all of our research. Um, it's specifically the Center for uh, Technology and Innovation. Um, I'm not on too many social medias. I'm only on Twitter. Um, you can find me at, at AngieCast, A-N-J-I-E-C-A-S-T. Um, and yeah, so I tweet some thoughts, um, mostly articles that I think is interesting. And I also have a bi-monthly or bi-weekly, I guess, every other week column for Reason Magazine. Um, so you can find me there. That is so exciting. And we're definitely going to link to all of those in our show notes. So our listeners don't even have to go through the hardship of Googling or DuckDuckGo searching. <laughs> Um, thank you so much for joining us. This was such a great episode and a great way to start a week uh, here at Tech Freedom and Tech Policy Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. Uh, so for all of our listeners, please share, review, and subscribe and do whatever you want, but just engage with our content because engagement is the currency in this, in this world. Uh, thank you for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at Tech Freedom.